0: This is ETC
1: Encouraging Teacher Conversation. Here's your hosts, Vivian Neal and Alison Pigus. Welcome to ETC Encouraging Teacher Conversation. My name is Vivian Neal and my co-host is Alison Pegas who is an independent educational consultant across all sectors in teaching and learning in Australia. She's a past Principal too, and has been a member of the National Executive of the Primary Principals Association Australia, known as APA. She's an International Baccalaureate School Evaluator, and right now is working across schools and organisations, focusing particularly around people, performing in teams and managing that with purpose, Welcome, Alison. Hi,
2: Vivian, and hello, everyone.
1: Right, so tell me a little bit about your career for the listeners, Alison, because we're all dying to know a little bit more about you.
2: Well, where does one start? I'll have to be very—I'll have to abbreviate quite a long career because I have been in education for over thirty years. But I guess I did get very interested very early as a young teacher in praise, feedback, uh, how groups worked and I was lucky in my first year out to have an extremely good teacher next door, which I I still think is one of the the best ways a young teacher can start, if they're lucky enough to have a brilliant mentor. So I'd graduated with an interest in psychology, and I'd done my honours in psychology. So I was interested in that area. It made me go out on a limb and become specialised sort of early. And I guess the more I learnt, the more I realised I didn't know. So I went from variety of schools over my early career, K to 12 schools, district schools, regional remote, city, small schools with difficult kids, and then I moved into the independent sector in New South Wales, and I taught in very expensive, high fee-paying schools, uh, single sex and co-ed. So during that time, I also extended my postgraduate work into, again, around thought, and the construction of self, so still operating in the thinking and the affective domain. I guess a lot of my uh, own academic work has been in, and and then has my career has followed that kind of path. Some of my colleagues and peers became interested very early in more management roles, and also became more interested in the whole organisation and orchestration of the school.
1: So, do you think that um, since you began teaching? Things have changed enormously because certainly uh, I began in, I hate to say this, 1983. And uh, certainly in the UK, we were still very much teaching in silos. You know, once you were in your classroom, you were uh, very much the boss, and nobody seemed to ask what you were doing. And actually communicating across the organisation didn't seem to be part of our um, modus operandi at all.
2: Very similar and very similar starting date, I have to add. Uh, Yes, we did have that closed door and you're qualified now. You had a year of probation, that kind of process here, but yes, it was very much you're qualified now, you're really supposed to be getting on with it. You can get the difficult children as well as an experienced teacher could get it, and you were expected to cope. And as I said before, if you were lucky enough to get a good mentor, you probably did cope. One of the one of the differences is now that we are aware that beginning teachers are that they are genuine beginners and that it's the responsibility of the rest of us to make sure they begin in a way that we want them to continue instead of beginning in the way that they were taught before they learn any
1: different to that. Yes, because if you're not careful, you just bring your own um, ideas of teaching from how you were in school, which is highly inappropriate. Uh, one anecdote, um, when I was uh, in my first year, um, my head of department used to spend his lunchtime reading the newspaper, and by about 10 to 2 would be asleep behind it, and I was having a little bit of a difficulty. and. Um, I said, I'm terribly sorry to disturb you, but can I just ask you something about whatever text I was teaching? And he said, look, Vivian, he said, you're experienced, you're intelligent enough, you know what you're doing, I have every confidence in you. And he went back to his paper. <laughs> so that was my, um, you know, help and mentoring.
2: In some ways though, if you think about it, thinking about also what we know about risk and error, we were freed to make error without an audience. True. Which for some people worked, but whilst we've continued to do that, we've compounded those errors as well.
1: Yes, because... You know, we
2: have the right mindset about the experimentation. I have to add, for me, it, the interest that got me right into being a researcher in my own class was through my own postgraduate work and getting students involved in research. It really changed how I taught from thinking I actually was an expert. Quite early in my career I had that realization that there is so much I don't know about this and that the kids actually can tell you much more than we give them credit for.
1: And of course that's very very important now. um, We can't ever predict in the same way as perhaps we could Um, where our students are coming from Uh, because with the internet and with the access to education generally uh, like never never before uh, we have a lot of experts um, in our classrooms every single day Um, and I think putting yourself in the position of learner does inform your teaching there's no doubt about that yes I agree
2: and in fact you really are the senior learner in the room
1: yes and that's a very different approach isn't it yeah
2: and it's two levels of different approach in that even if the students saw you as a senior learner, unless you see yourself as one, you're not either. It has to be a stated role for students seeing the teacher, thinking aloud about what they are gleaning from the group as well. And I had an example very early in my career of a teacher who, who showed me that, who modeled that. Everything that she did, she said to the students, why might I be doing that? And at the time that she was doing that kind of conversation with her students, she was shocking them. In fact, the similar look of shock on the face of the students in Dylan Williams, the the Welsh researcher, the work that he's done with students, they have similar disbelief on their face. I'm surprised that students in today's world still have disbelief on their face when they're asked for an opinion.
1: I think that is really, really important, and actually Mm -hmm. giving time nobody ever gave time for students to think you would ask a question and say right who knows the answer to this oh no one okay let's move on type thing whereas you actually do need time to process and as professionals we also need to reflect and be reflexive in our approach to how we're teaching our roles the narratives we're creating um, and where, where we see ourselves and our students developing it's not just a case of um, transmission, is it?
2: No, interesting that you say the narrative like that too because that, word, that was the transmission narrative, the, the gumball machine or the empty box narrative. Yeah. But the, the other narrative is the one that you opened with in that first question about the, the silos. The new narrative that we're moving towards gradually, one would have to say, but is, is a collaborative one. It's got to be. Because the connections are, the experts are in your room, as you say. Our current narrative has to be much more collaborative about teacher practice so that we don't have a silo of, here's a group of teachers that we know do fabulous work and whose students regularly produce in advance of a year's worth of progress. Here's a group of teachers that we know regularly don't.
1: I think that's really important because, you know, in the past, um, people were very cagey about what they were actually doing in their classrooms and many, many people didn't want to share. And if somebody was set up as an example of good practice, uh, there was a, almost like a mealy-mouthed approach. Oh, well, she you know she knows what she's doing or she's got lots of resources. Um, and what I found really interesting, um, some, let me think, 10 or more 15 years ago I was working in um, further education and we started putting courses online in what we called blended learning where we were actually teaching some uh, physical classes and some were actually forming themselves online uh, for students who couldn't get into the college Um, and so therefore you had to put your courses online accessible to anyone and there was so much resistance to that you know, as if to say, well, someone's going to see my notes, someone's going to steal what I'm doing. It was quite crazy. Um, And I think there's still an element of that. But the most important thing for me um, is that we have to be collaborative, we have to be open, we have to start, you know, linking everything. If you look at how data is shaping the way we are living our lives, uh, we've got to make sure that everyone is talking to everyone else. Otherwise, you end up not communicating at all in the milieu that we're kind of living in.
2: Which ends up being making those silos even more pronounced. Yeah. And the access thing is a very big part of what we're talking about too. You know, the the change in what's what's accessible, what we can get to remote areas, what we can get to teachers in, in different ways in terms of their professional learning.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got to uh, really think about this and, you know, start with the teachers, you know, if they are being collaborative, if they're trying to generate change, being creative, being flexible, being dynamic and being agile, then that is a really sound starting point, in my opinion.
2: Yes, again, getting to beginning teachers in terms of the flexibility of their thinking is not really the big issue. They are very flexible thinkers. Dealing with the flexibility and the, and the, the unfettered access that younger teachers have to information is one thing. L- helping them know what to do with it is the professional learning component of that, isn't it? But they have access to so much more. They can get a lesson plan. They can get a lesson plan that we, we, we spent the night before Writing.
1: Yeah.
2: And we made the aids to probably go with the lesson as well. <laughs> but all of that's there. It's the, which shows us, it's the how you do, how you use that strategy in the classroom that makes the difference
1: to its effect. I mean, as a teacher trainer, um, I have sat in the back of lessons um, observing and obviously writing reports. And I've looked at the most fabulous resources that I've sat at the back of the class feeling wholly inadequate. But Uh the way they were actually utilized didn't ever seem to have any point. You know, it was um, all singing, all dancing, but nothing really happened. And it was interesting because um, the kids would be turning around to look at me as if to say, we're not getting anywhere. And I thought that was fascinating because, you know, the whole setup of the room, you know, all the bits and pieces on the desk was absolutely fabulous. But the teaching and learning that stemmed from that was virtually non-existent.
2: And you could get away with it. Again, I guess get away with it may not be the right word. In fact, teachers could be left to develop no improvement in their practice for many years because we haven't had that feedback from an adult and we haven't used students as feedback. And the big one is we haven't actually monitored in the way we can now student progress over time with such accuracy and relate it to the practices in which those students you know those students have been subjected to
1: yeah so so, what um, do you think is your main focus at the moment and how would you like to see schools evolving
2: I'm heartened by the way that I'm seeing that many of us have, are seeing in Australia and that is increasing focus on evidence based practice which which means a whole lot more sharing between teachers so so I I I think the focus that I'm certainly taking and seeing in my work that that most people respond to is increasing connection between staff staff members. So, I guess that's asking for a greater autonomy for school principals to create culture and make decisions, big decisions that have effect on culture. There is a, there's increasing autonomy for school principals in Australia, which can go either way, obviously, but um, that autonomy can lead to staff selection. It can lead to professional learning decisions, but it can it can make a big dis- difference the decision making they have around their leadership, what they do with their leadership. So, if we're going to actually see this a collaborative approach spreading, we need to see more bravery, I think, from principals, which we are seeing, and th- and the move that's allowing that to happen is the increasing autonomy to schools.
1: Is there any sort of negative aspect of that? I mean, if you have very charismatic um, principals who are taking risks and are very autonomous, um, does that mean that the differentiation between different schools uh, might be vast? Or has that always been like that? (coughs) Well,
2: it has always been like that. Anecdotally, I dealt with a principal recently who had moved her school's performance incredibly over the, over the past six years that she'd been at the school. So they're in a low socioeconomic area, They their children were performing well below where the national average, and in the six years those students have made over a year's increase in their time, so their progress has been incredibly high. But their achievement is still only just meeting average. So she's made some very brave decisions, but there is nothing to compel the person who takes the role after following her to continue doing that. In fact, the forces the forces at work would tempt a principal who comes in for a short stay to do quick fixes and see high marks from a smaller group of students. So that's there's a, there's a really good example where taking the brave stance may not have been the popular one. And there is the downfall, there's the appointment, all of the issues around appointing principals to positions, I guess, too. But it's making those decisions when you're in there, and I think that differential between schools in a, in, in that you have, clearly you have in England, but, yes, we do have in Australia and will be there, is there between the sectors anyway.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They appoint senior people in a very different way
1: Yes, that's very true. So your work then uh, performing in teams and managing that with purpose. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about what that work involves?
2: Most of my work is with either uh, the senior teams in small businesses or organisations and in schools, but mostly with schools. So it's looking at the collaborative models in the actually at use in the school a lot of the time so what teams now we all know schools are made of teams there are teams within teams in all schools and if those teams are working well with a level of autonomy and clarity of process then many of the things that bottleneck for school leadership executive teams don't become bottlenecks so I work with executives of schools to look at their their context what are the big issues that they actually need to have focused teams on in their strategic planning? And then I work within the dynamics of the teams, so with the leaders of the teams, creating dynamics that work. And, and that is about working as you do in the classroom. All of the things that, are, that I do in my work with senior teams is mod, that they can model again with their staff, and staff can model again in a child version for students. that they are at each level a learning focus so it's collaborative learning i'm really setting helping helping them set up in their in their schools now what that has led to is greater handing on of the baton that is the culture of good practice in the pockets of the school because it will be teachers who are passionate about particular aspects of the school who will be the leaders of those teams that is just how human nature works on those in a a team situation and the schools are no different. So it's looking at how do groups develop, how do you facilitate that connection between group and get the clarity and the passion in the same spot. And often when you look at groups in schools in a um, more random way, in your obvious way, so in a way that allows teachers to follow passion, not necessarily the school's major focus, the teacher's passions, the movement forward in those schools after several years is exponential. I have several examples where that is the case. Um, after, after you know, several years of of uh, changing their group structure each time according to people's passions, and every time their markers or their KPIs for their school performance were bettered, and it is counterintuitive.
1: So, do you think there's any way of putting in um, procedures that circumvent the need for charismatic teachers? <laughs> Sorry, that's being really devil's advocate yeah, I, here.
2: Yeah, uh, that's. I actually call that the cult of personality. Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, and it's a very easy trap because it's very easy to do to have students. To have teachers who've, who actually don't realise they're using a cult of personality to um, motivate their students, which isn't intrinsically generative of learning, you know, continuous learning for the students, uh, you're really looking at that notion of reducing in-school variance, which is about that collaborative model. Because what the data does tell us about that is that there's over 60% chance a variation between teachers in schools. Whereas differences between schools in similar areas of similar students, their differences are in the 30s usually. So the difference that matters is when you have inconsistency through school, and I see that as the way to answer your question in terms of is there a way of standardising? Well, no, you wouldn't want your doctors all to be the same either, but you wouldn't want them to be handling um an infectious disease without the proper sanitation there are ways that we know that work better than others and i and i think once the profession is honest about those conversations look we know some of these practices are substantially more effective than these practices used in this way so I, i think the more the conversation is around that in the profession totally honestly about this is a really good teaching practice this teacher uses this practice in this way i think that's a great model for us to be having
1: so we need a basic um professional benchmarking um, that says look this is the baseline um, and we want to do better than this but
2: i guess once you have start those conversations what you see is once teachers start saying well this is what this student's done this is what this student's done The next question becomes, because it becomes the elephant in the room, well, what is our standard here? Why aren't we benchmarking this again? Particularly for subjects like art and music and phys ed where, you know, they haven't had such lockstep descriptors. You know, there's been a much more lockstep descriptor in literacy and numeracy in those kind of standard setting, syllabus standard setting, developmental, continua based documentation. Whereas, once the conversations start between teachers, over student work, moderation kind of conversations, they very quickly get to the point that says, what is the standard here? Which makes them say, what is the standard in our context? Which makes them say, how do we know? Which makes them look at their assessment task. And you get to that then, that work backwards. I want them to understand this, this is this is how they would demonstrate it, okay, that is what my assessment task needs to look like. Now coming back to your question about can we standardize can we which is really what your question about avoiding the teacher who is just working on charisma Mm. you know can we identify some behaviors they have to come from the professional understanding we know that about any learning an experience is required for us to shift our thinking in any way that's enduring so teachers have to come to that realization through conversation through teacher dialogue I'm I'm sounding possibly quite dogmatic about that and it's (laughs) possibly because that's how I feel about that well I haven't seen teachers change their practice without there being some cognitive dissonance around something they're currently doing
1: right I mean have you seen the film Dead Poets Society yes for me that is very much the cult of personality and Mm -hmm. i get very frustrated uh and i used to use uh excerpts of that film with my um students in training um to say this is exactly what you don't want to do in a school um and so many other people say oh my god it's so fabulous it's amazing i'd love to have been inspired in that way um but there's some real fundamental issues in the in the narrative of that particular film that i I wring my hands, I have to say.
2: But I also use the Mona Lisa smile as a, as a, as a, a, a training one as well because uh, there's some furfies in there as well and they all relate to that wonderful quote that people get given to put on their desk when they first become a teacher. Something about, you know, you're really going to change minds and lives and, and uh, that is the dead poet fantasy. Even though it is true for many people once, if, if you consider how many teachers they had in their life also. And then if, then there's that. And then there's the message we're giving to teachers that it's about being charismatic that matters. It's, that is that awful message.
1: Well, on that, on that note, <laughs> perhaps we'll um, leave it there and come back to uh, this heated debate um, when we talk again next week. So, thank you very much, Alison, for all your observations, and I'm sure that listeners will have an awful lot to say and respond to. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. This is ETC, encouraging teacher conversation. So, moving on, we're delighted to welcome Matt Esterman to ETC. At ETC, we're always looking for movers and shakers in the educational world, and Matt is exactly that. He's a history teacher and e-learning coordinator at a school in Sydney. Matt is involved in teach meets, Twitter chats, professional associations and other professional learning networks. He tells me he loves learning and hopes to share more with the world. Welcome, Matt. We're delighted you could join us today.
0: G'day. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Very welcome. So, um, you are involved in uh, looking at all the challenges for teachers as they uh, become and develop as lifelong learners. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think there are lots of challenges that are developing um, and have developed over the recent past for teachers, uh, whereby there are more and more demands on teachers' time. So, perhaps even 10 or 15 years ago, there weren't the kinds of administrative and other Demands uh, for teachers to pack into their days and their weeks, Um, and now what we're finding is that not only are we we sort of struggling with the day to day, um, but I suppose we're also. Trying and striving to be those learners and, and leaders of learning that um, that everyone wants us to be in the classroom and beyond. So there's the challenge of time, of course. There's there's almost the other big challenge I'd say is that there's almost too much learning um, opportunity out there. There's just a huge amount of opportunity, both formal and informal, that uh, um, are sort of bombarding teachers um, quite often. So not only do they not have time, but there's so much out there that they could do that it's overwhelming at times as well.
1: So, um, do you think everybody um, is keen to be a lifelong learner and take this journey on? Um, How do you find people who are moving towards the end of their careers? Are they just as excited or do you get some resistance to the notion of lifelong learning?
0: Um, Look, I think it's not about age necessarily. It's not necessarily about career stage. Um, that, That may play a part but I've met plenty of teachers that are towards the end of their career who are just as passionate as they were, um, when they came fresh out of university. Um, they, they want to improve, they want to grow. Um, they want to try new things. They want to fail, um, and learn from it. Uh, and, and, Equally as much, I've, I've met people who are early on in their careers or, or quite comfortable in their career path um, who are kind of sitting on their laurels a little bit. And um, I'm sure I'm guilty of that sometimes in some ways of, of saying, no, you know what, I, I know everything I need to know in that particular aspect of my job. And so I'm just going to not learn anything about it and, and not read up on it or, or go to professional learning events or anything like that because I feel comfortable. So, um, you know, I think uh, a better way to think about it is our, our personality and our approach and perhaps our mindset. Uh, rather than our um, career stage uh, because I think it is about your mindset and if you um, – not that not that you should always doubt what you do. Um, I think you need to have confidence in yourself, but I think that there is um, room for people to have that growth mindset and to say, actually, you know what, um, I can grow, I can change, um, and I can become better, and, and there's no – shame in saying that. There's no shame in saying, you know what, I'm not as good of a history teacher in this particular area as that person next to me. Uh, I'm quite lucky to teach next to, in my case, a fantastic history teacher doing the same course as I am, and he. I will never catch up to the level of knowledge that he has, but at the same time, I've got strengths that he doesn't, and, and we can work together. Um, and I suppose broadening that out as a profession, we can rely on each other a little bit more in this, in this current climate um, to say, well, actually, you don't have to have be an expert in absolutely everything you can have your areas of strength and you have to identify your areas of weakness and so long as we're still growing and we're still evolving I suppose then that's all anyone can ever expect of us
1: but doesn't this really um, make us think again about the way we treat Teachers and the teacher's journey, because there was a time where the teacher came to a class and he or she was the font of all knowledge. And you had that very old fashioned approach saying, you know, you're an empty vessel, I'm going to fill you, um, and that the teacher knew everything. By suggesting that the teacher doesn't know everything, how could they possibly in this technological age? um, Doesn't it undermine the role of teacher?
0: Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I suppose it's, um, you know, there are those, those categories of teachers that we talk about now being the sage on the stage or the, um, you know, middler in the middle is one I like um, or the guide on the side. Um, and I, I suppose I'd like to think that most teachers do a little bit of all of them whenever it's appropriate. I think the power of a good teacher is to know when to intervene, to know when to stand in front of the class and, and tell a story or to um, you know to do the opposite and just stand on the side and let the kids do the learning. I think we underestimate the power of what kids can do when we've provided them with scaffolds and when uh, we give them a clear expectation, which they often surpass. Um, I don't know how many times I've set a standard and the kids have just rocked right past it um, and have done amazing stuff that I couldn't have thought of. And I think that's the point: is if we give them a box to exist in, then they'll fill that box and they won't go outside of it. But if we say, well, you know, there's a square and you don't have to stay inside it. Um, you can step out and try things and you know what, if you fail, that's okay. Then, you know, we might have to step in at certain times and say, um, look, let me give you a bit of knowledge about this thing. Um, when they have questions, yes, I'll answer them. I'm not going to ignore you <laughs> and be, the, be a silent guide on the side or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's that power of, Of knowing when to intervene and how deeply to intervene in a student's learning Um, because I guess look uh, you know one of of the ideas I subscribe to is that um, you know learning can happen without a teacher but teaching can't happen without learners and so I think we just have to keep that in mind when we are planning out our lessons and planning out our sequences of lessons and units and things and say well yeah what are the learning objectives as opposed to what are the teaching objectives even though we're held quite accountable to what we do from our perspective um i I think most school leaders the best school leaders are the ones who identify that you know what it's not all about box ticking like that'll happen if you're a great teacher the boxes will be ticked um but if you're um Or focused solely on the box ticking then that's all you'll ever achieve and that's not really what we're here for.
1: I agree with you I mean I think that teaching and education in general has to be creative agile and flexible because that reflects the contemporary workplace. Uh, The economics of the world has changed dramatically even in the last 10 years Um, and we know that we're going to have more uh, change thrust upon us so therefore having that mindset where we we do look at things creatively and we are really agile in the way we solve a problem um, and flexible um, and that ability to change I think is important therefore putting ourselves perhaps um, in the position of learner always is also a very good thing because it does help you empathize and explore what students are going through because it's easy when you are a so-called expert in your field to forget just the problems that people are uh, experiencing when they undertake your subject area.
0: For sure and I think that we forget also that um, you know kind of like sometimes I think In in political discussions or in in public discourse, we forget that people aren't just consumers. They're not just taxpayers. They're not just voters. um, They're citizens as well, and they're, they're, um, you know, family members, and they're all sorts of different things. And our kids are as well. Our our students are. You know, they're not just a mark on a page. And um, if you obsess about marks on the page, then that's what you'll turn the kids into. And they'll start thinking, oh, I'm a B student. Um, or, you know, I'm an A student, and of course we, you know, we need structures and scaffolds to, um, to, to measure growth and measure understanding and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not saying we do away with that completely, But we just have to realise that, you know what, some days um, there might be a student sitting there who just will not learn, no matter how good of a teacher you are, because they aren't in the disposition to learn. So something might have happened in their private life, something might have happened two seconds ago, um, they might be worried about something happening, and we have to understand that, and this is, I think, a big difference to perhaps previous generations, where you did just walk in and just teach. Um, Now we do have to have that kind of connection and that that participation and engagement from the kids to actually be an effective teacher. Um, And so we have to, you know, I've been very lucky in the schools that I've worked in where um, we are pushed to consider the whole child. Um, And I think most schools would do that, you know? We're not out to um, just create these little automaton learners or, or, or... um, you know exam writers or things like that I think any teacher with their salt would say no actually I do think of them as people as well as um, you know <laughs> essay writers and researchers and all that other stuff.
1: The idea of uh, traditional versus new is quite an interesting um, dynamic. Uh, in the UK for example uh, we've got a, an experiment actually uh, being televised where Chinese Teachers have come into UK into a specific UK school uh, to teach in the Chinese way and uh, contribute aspects of their language and culture. Um, and it's interesting because um, the Chinese model sees their students being, uh, by the age of 14, about three years ahead um, of UK students in maths. And so, of course, with maths being such a foundation subject for just about everything, um, it's a cause of concern. So uh, it's easy to look at a Chinese or a Singapore model and say, gosh, we we need some of that to to help our kids get along. But the really interesting thing is it's so alien to the way students are... uh, being taught and are learning that the Chinese teachers well a couple of them have actually been in tears Um, and the head teacher is sitting in the back of the classroom watching some of it at times Um, and that whole essence of you know I've got the answer you're going to sit there you're going to write it down and learn it Um, and the expectation is that if I've told you um, what to think about parallelograms immediately you'll get it and we can then move on and the Chinese system is that they have a standard and they don't deviate from that standard and they work very very quickly and the expectation is you don't question you pick up your problems in your own time and come back to the lesson up to speed basically and you can imagine all hell is breaking loose in the UK classrooms
0: oh look I, uh, yeah I'll respond to that, absolutely, which is, look, I'm not, I'm not an expert in these sorts of comparative um, education systems and things like that, but I have read about how systems like in Singapore and South Korea are actually looking at things like the PISA results and all that sort of stuff and going, guys, you know, don't do what we do because we're now actually taking a shift and taking a conscious decision to move away from that kind of testing regime, to move away from that kind of teaching style and, and um, the infrastructure and, and the thinking around that because it's actually destroying our kids (laughs) and and we're not creating the crew, sort of supporting the creative problem solving critical thinkers that we actually do need. Yeah, people need maths, absolutely. Um, But how much maths do you need to survive in life? Um, I I would, you know, I didn't do uh, maths in my final year at school and I'm doing okay. I can create spreadsheets when I need to because I go on YouTube and I look at how to do it. or I'm lucky enough, of course, to be a teacher where I've got a fantastic maths department where I can say, hey, can I have five minutes of recess and we'll sit down and chat me through this thing. So it's not necessarily about knowing everything. Um, and I know people like Sagata Mitra often argues that are we at the end of knowledge? Um, that is, Sorry, the end of knowing, not the end of knowledge, but the end of that idea that you do have to be that um, you know receptacle of knowledge and facts and, and remembering that... Um, but actually, it doesn't matter how much you know, so long as you know how to find out the stuff you don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm all about training young learners. I'm not really about, you know, I'll put it in my own context. I'm, if, if a kid can't remember um, exactly the date that a war started or that um, a particular person became prime minister or something like that, that doesn't worry me as much as if they can't work out how to find out if they give up after two seconds and throw their hands up and say, I've got no idea how to, how do I find this information out, blah, 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 blah. I don't know, I can't do it. That's more worrying to me, is this idea that kids don't have the grit or the resilience or the the, the mindset as well, I suppose, to, to be a good learner or a great learner or an efficient learner in that regard. So um, it's interesting to me when we do try and um, inject different cultural approaches into, into education because uh, I think education is very much infused with the culture of the place um, and each school is different as well like talk about cultures you'll go from one um, uh, you know school to another and see very different ways and approaches in the classroom because that school has cultivated a particular approach and um, you know I, I'd like to think that They adapt it based on the kids that are sitting in the classroom and the learners that they have. I'd like to think that they're a bit more flexible about their approach in that they can say, well, you know what, if you're a fluent Italian speaker, why are you sitting there doing Year 7 Italian? Why don't you go on to Year year 10 Italian? Or why don't you start your HSC in New South Wales or, um, you you know, your your advanced study earlier? Um, Yeah, you might be sitting next to 16-year-olds and you're 12 and we've got to, you know, deal with that. But um, if we can break down some of those barriers about um, age-based learning and and saying that, no, no, you're not able to do Year 10 maths yet because you're just in Year 7. Well, actually, maybe they can. Maybe they've got that thinking around literature or language or or mathematics or something. And yeah, at recess and lunch, they'll chat to their mates. They might have have some of them in class so that socialisation's still there with people of their own age. Um, but actually, in terms of learning, they might be at different rates in different ways. Now, most schools aren't built to cope with that. Most schools are built on that, um, you know, dare I say, an industrial model where you have a batch of kids and you push them through and, and they stay with that group. But, you know, you go to some schools and they're making flexible arrangements for certain kids, um, you know, in particular for kids with disabilities or with, with um, learning issues or with social issues. Um, with, with all sorts of different contexts. And schools are really trying hard, I think, to make way for that. And to say, well, actually, no, we can sort of mold the learning experience around the student to some extent, as opposed to just filling them into a jug that of, of which a shape we decide. Uh, so it is interesting to me when we do try and inject different cultures immediately and expect them to work, because it's change, you know? It's, um, it, it's not relevant to every kid. And of course, the less relevant a classroom is to a student, the more they'll disengage and the less they'll see school as a relevant place to be. And I think that's a real shame. And and there are so many opportunities out there to learn at their own pace and in their own way that I'm really interested to see in the next 10 years where schools actually go.
1: I think you're right i think it will be a really really exciting time well it is already so would you like to tell me a little bit about um what you're involved with in terms of kind of professional learning networks
0: sure i guess the the main one would be uh teach meets in australia so we borrowed the idea from you guys in the uk um and so we've now got teach me communities all around australia or running themselves and and running professional learning for teachers and by teachers, and they're wonderful. Um, If anyone listening wants to run a teacher meet, you can. You just need a venue and a date and a theme or or something like that and a bunch of passionate people and and away you go. And uh, yeah, I guess there's that, there's Twitter conversations, which um, Twitter I consider to be just a global staff room, you know, you walk in and people are chatting away and then you walk out again and they keep chatting um, and, and you can pick up some great ideas from it. You can have some amazing connections and conversations. Uh, and, and those are the sorts of things that we couldn't necessarily do before Google Hangouts and Skype chats, and you know even things like LinkedIn and, and those sorts of sites. I suppose where um, oh Facebook for example, Facebook groups we have teachers jumping in. I'm a member of the Historical Teachers Association of Ireland, for example, <laughs> and um, I haven't visited Ireland yet. But you know when um, I'm doing a topic about Irish history or about, um, say, the Irish in Australia or something like that, that's a connection that I couldn't possibly have thought of having 10 or 15 years ago, really. And so I think um, I'm I'm involved in a few social media networks that way, but also the more traditional ones as well, teacher associations, say history teachers or ICT educators associations and those sorts of things and going to conferences and workshops and seminars and and those sorts of things. So, you know, I think there's a place in the learning landscape for all those different types of learning. Uh, I think, again, it comes down to personality and mindset and some people will only go to very expensive conferences for some reason. They, they put value on that. And if they get value out of it, wonderful. But there are people who get just as much value out of a teach meet which they haven't paid for um, and they've participated in and they presented at. And maybe that's what they need too. So whilst there are some things that perhaps we need to do for accreditation purposes or, you know, to tick those boxes, I'd like to think that if teachers are engaged in their own learning, then, again, those boxes will be ticked. Um, you just go along and get your professional learning and get your professional growth happening and the sort of admin will take care of itself.
1: Fantastic so um, do you think that um, there is a really good way to record the kind of um, development that's going on uh, with teachers learning uh, and not necessarily just from courses?
0: There's a few different things like for instance in Australia we have a um, Uh, the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership have a whole bunch of tools and resources for teachers to use to compare themselves to the the national standards for teachers that we have now. Um, I think in New Zealand they have similar things and and Singapore, I think, as well. And different countries have different um, standards, of course, written pretty much... they're they're comparable but um, written in different ways and for different purposes and of course the expectations around it are different too some systems are very laissez-faire some are quite um, uh, authoritarian and and, um, (laughs) require quite a bit of admin around um, keeping a track of things Um, but i guess you know, my whole thing is we weren't employed to be as, uh, to be administrators. You know, we weren't employed to be data entry um, people. Um, those roles are absolutely critical at schools, but teachers were not employed to do that. Um, and any admin that we do should have a positive impact on learning because if it's not, then a teacher shouldn't really be doing it.
1: So Matt, I'd like to thank you for taking the time uh, to visit us and certainly we found what you have been saying about lifelong learning very interesting.
0: Look, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, and look, I guess a, a message to teachers out there is that the kids want you to be the best learners. You know, they want you to lead them through learning. Um, they, you know, even when they're angry at you and frustrated with you and all that sort of stuff, and even with when we're frustrated with them, um, they do actually lap it up when you give them a challenge, um, when, when you do push them along in their learning, um, when you do try and engage them, just make the effort. Um, it is worth it. If, you've, if you're struggling, if you're frustrated or something, get in touch with people. There are people all around the world who are willing to give you um, their time, their advice, their resources in a lot of cases. So don't reinvent the wheel. Get in touch with people. Establish a professional learning network and, um, and use it, you know. Really keep in touch with people and keep that conversation going so that you can be the best learner in the room.
1: Thanks very much, Matt. I think that is um, advice we should all take on board immediately. This is ETC. We do hope you've enjoyed our first outing, and I'm sure ETC will go from strength to strength. More importantly, we'd love to know more about what you're doing, and we're actively looking for teachers and educators who have something to say and would like to share their ideas, practices and perspective with ETC's audience. If you'd like to appear on the show, do contact us through the TTA website, which is tta.edu.au, or catch up with us on Twitter or LinkedIn, where we are very active. Meanwhile, if you've liked the show, do leave us a rating on iTunes. It's one way we can ensure the word is spread, and we look forward to being with you next time. So from Alison and from me, it's goodbye for now.